0: Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking verses 4 through 6, and the message and tell the reasons for unity, and this is part 2. Paul has moved from the doctrinal to the practical admonition to the Ephesians regarding their walk in unity. He did this at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. By a walk worthy of our calling in verse 1, divine virtues to enable them to bear up um, with one another in love, in verse 2, and by doing everything to not disrupt the divine unity of the Spirit, in verse 3. We do not create unity. We create this unity. We interrupt the unity that God makes. We don't do it by organizing. We don't do it by any other... The Holy Spirit makes this unity. The general, the general unity, as we said, is presented under the Trinity. You have the Spirit, in verse 4 the Son in verse 5, and the Father in verse 6. The specifics of unity is presented in triplets under each person of the Trinity. You'll find them in verse 4, 5, and 6. Seven times Paul repeats the word one between verse 4 through 6 to express the unity and the oneness of each category. Now, Paul has given us seven reasons why they should walk in unity. We examined the first three last time in verse 4. They were because there is one body, because there is one spirit, and because we are called in one hope of our calling. Now, we want to look at the last four reasons why we are to walk in the unity as believers, and that's found in verse 5 through 6. Let me read here. Let me back up. I'll read from 4 all the way down. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The last four reasons are as follows. First, because there is one Lord. Second, because there is one faith. Third, because there is one baptism. And fourth, because there is one God and Father of all. The first for tonight and the fourth in the list, the reason is that we are to walk in unity is because there is one Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul, notice, uses the word Lord here as a title, signifying power and authority. The word Lord kurios indicates the one to whom a person or thing belongs to, having power to decide over that object or that person, a master or Lord, sovereign, absolute. He is the possessor and disposer of a thing or an owner that's in control of the person. In most of the time in cultures as such, they would call him master, lord, their equivalent. In the state, it would be the sovereign, be it a prince, a chief, or a Roman emperor. The word kurios, as a title, was also used to express honor, respect, or reverence. This would be done by servants to greet their masters. This would also be expressed by a person in respect to a superior or just another person. The word is found throughout scripture in various ways. Let me give you some. It is used of a master and slave relationship. We find it in uh, Matthew ten twenty four. He says, "A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master." Curios, Matthew 10:24. Jesus speaking. In Matthew 13:27, it's the use of a superior in respect and politeness. So the servants of the owner came and said to them, "Sir, curios, did you now, uh, did you not sow good seed?" In your field, how then does it have tears? Matthew 13:27, respect. In Luke 16:3, it is used of an owner, an employer. Then the steward said within himself, "What shall I do? For my master Kurios, is t- um, taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg." Luke 16:3. And then it is used of a wife's relationship to her husband. In 1 Peter 3, 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Kurios, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So you can see that the context is important when you are using that word. The Apostle Paul, notice, declared that the title Lord, kurios, is one of the reasons for our unity as Christians. The word in our text is used by Paul in view of Jesus being supreme and sovereign Lord of the believer. The context is the Christian. Kurios is equivalent to the Old Testament word Adonai. Capital L, small r, small small o, small r, small d. When it's all all capital letters, it's the name of God, Yahweh. When it's just capital L, small o, r, d, then it's Adonai in the Old Testament. The word kurias identifies the second person here of the Trinity, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus is the one and only Lord to whom we belong to and is the only one for the basis of our unity. No one else. Jesus is indicated by the word one. It's in the masculine. This is the fourth time it appears out of the seven. Verse four the first two were in the neuter, the third in the feminine. Now, Jesus found us in a lost condition and we called on his name through repentance and saved us because our Lord, he became our Lord and master. So through our confession and our repentance, we humble ourselves, we submit ourselves and we gave our entire lives to him to be The instructor, the controller, the disciplinarian, everything, completely. He purchased us from the slave market and redeemed us by his precious blood. Jesus is our Lord, the one we have bowed our hearts and obeyed in word and deed. To love and obey him over every human law that would contradict his will that is found in the word of God. His word is supreme. His will is supreme. We all are united by His Lordship over our life. To love and obey Him more than above all relationships, be it a father, a mother, a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter, a friend, supreme. As the Old Testament says, love the Lord, that God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the second is like unto the first. But the vertical is the source of the horizontal. Your neighbor, first God. To love and obey him in life, in times of joy, sadness, peace, tribulation, prosperity, poverty, testing, sufferings. At all times, we have this rich history as Christians. In the first century, martyrs. 2nd century, 3rd century, those that are now in prison in Iran, in Iraq, Russia, many other places, those who are being persecuted today. Thomas recognized and confessed the power and the authority of Jesus when he said he would not believe unless he saw the prince in his hands and the opening on his side, and Jesus says, Philip, come and see. And Philip said, My Lord, my God, in John 20, 28. Complete submission to him, complete lordship. The unity of the believer is not in a pastor or the church, but only in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said earlier. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11-13. You know, the Corinthians were very carnal, and they were all conglomerated. They were divided into factions, and not. they forgot about their unity in Christ. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, Peter, Or I'm of Christ, those who really thought they were really self-righteous. Is Christ divided? No. That's the answer. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. The unity of every Christian is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the main aspects of our unity. The priority, if you will. There is one Lord and God, not many, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Not many people are lords in the world, but they're no lords at all. They're gods, but there's no gods at all when you compare them to the God of, of Jesus and the Lord who Jesus is. This unity is only possible by the Spirit. His silent witness. He never speaks of himself. First Corinthians twelve three. It's the Spirit that puts everything together. He never speaks of himself. He doesn't bring glory to himself. God has so highly exalted Jesus that He's given Him a name above every other name. The name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Philippians two nine through eleven, and He says, "Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus." Who didn't think of robbery to be equal with God, but He emptied Himself of His glory, not his deity, and he took on the form of a servant, emptying himself, the kenosis. And he humbled himself to the point of death. And so, this is the person that we are united in, no other. Too often people today are united around a pastor or a church or a movement of the success or the glamour or the Whoever, the celebrities that go there or the person who, whatever, you fill in the blank. And that is idolatry. That is absolutely wrong. The warning to the believer is about a divided heart. No man can serve two masters for he will love the one and hate or despise the other. Matthew six twenty four. You can't, you can't love two things equally. One is gonna win out over the other. If you're single, you can't have two boyfriends. I'm not saying you can't have them, really, but you can't have them equally. And if the other one finds out, it's not gonna go that well. Or two girlfriends, okay? In, In, in itself, It's very self-serving. But you can't have it. It just doesn't work out. Luke 4, 46 says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? So one of the markings of Jesus being my Lord is my obedience to him. Now, we're not talking about sinlessness. We're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about that we don't live the way we used to that we live to please the Lord, we keep our accounts short and we are growing in him and maturing in him and, and uh, pressing towards the mark. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father in heaven, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one. So there's a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, now some of them are not born again, never been born again. And Jesus says to them, I I never knew you. But there are others who will walk away. And it's because something else takes the place of Jesus. Whether it be a woman, a man, wealth, pleasure. You fill in the blank. There are many, many reasons. So the believer is to walk in unity because... There is one Lord, him and him alone, no one else. Now, the fifth reason in the list, and the second for tonight, is that we are to walk in unity because there is one faith. The Apostle Paul here is not using the word faith to refer to doctrine in terms of the content of different doctrines, of faith, love, or whatever, but faith for salvation. Thayer's lexicon uh, describes it as conviction of the truth of anything, belief in the New Testament of a conviction of belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the included idea of trust and holy fervor, born of faith, and joined with it. So in relationship to God, the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of salvation through Christ. This is the faith that he's talking about. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen, 17. And that's how people get saved. The, the gospel gets preached as they hear it. The Holy Spirit is there to turn on the light, bring conviction, and enable them to repent. But he will not repent for them doesn't force anyone to go to heaven. And you hear that message and you believe what it says, that you're a sinner, that you're under God's wrath, that he is God who became man, that he died in your place, paid the price for your sin, he rose from the dead, and he sits in the right hand of the Father, and he alone can forgive you of your sins if you call on his name, believing what he did for you. That's the faith we're talking about here. This is the belief of Christians with the idea of trust. That's the predominant idea. Or confidence, whether in God or in Christ, springing from faith of the same. Belief in what he's done. Now, the New Testament gives great witness of this kind of faith of salvation. Um, In uh, Galatians one twenty-three, it says, But they were hearing only... Um, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Paul is talking about himself. Because you know that Paul used to kill Christians, persecute them, throw them in jails, cause them to blaspheme. And then he got saved, and he was out there in Arabia for three years, Galatians tells us, and had a personal discipleship with Jesus for three years. And then when they began to... Uh, attempt to kill him they had to let him down a basket from Damascus and he scurried over to Jerusalem he met with James and Peter and beside those he didn't meet with anybody else and then he got too hot to handle in Jerusalem and the Jews wanted to kill him and so he went up to Tarsus he took an R&R seven to nine years and nobody saw hide nor hair of Paul all they heard was that he was preaching the faith that he used to persecute And then when God began to do the work in Antioch, among the Gentiles, Barnabas went looking for Paul. And it took him a long time. It was difficult, the Greek and the And they came back together and they taught the Gentiles and made disciples of them. And he taught in the church for one year. And that's where they first were called Christians. Before that, they were called those on the way in the early 70s, late 60s, when God was pouring out His Spirit and many of the hippies were being saved in the tent with Pastor Chuck, and then once they built the sanctuary, everybody would be in their vans, you know, and long hair and, you know, the curtains and everything else. And when you were a Christian, you'd go like this. You'd pick your finger up like this, one way, point upward, one way. It's interesting that culture changes. Now, Muslims do this. But, of course, they're meaning a whole different thing, right? (laughs) But when you stuck your finger up, you went that way, you're saying one way, the Lord. In Galatians 6.10, it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Philippians 1.25, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, all for your progress in joy and faith. Jude 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. You see the faith is limited by the word one. The Greek word mia. Now in Spanish mia is mine. and <laughs> the Greek mia is in the feminine. It means one and only one. There's no other faith. There's no other Lord. There's no other faith that can save. Except that which preaches the one Lord. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. People want to make things broader today, especially with the politically correctness. They want to intimidate. They want to pressure. They want to... You know, they don't, they, they, you know, they don't want you to, nobody's supposed to judge, but if you don't agree with them, they judge you. It's kind of funny. They, they preach tolerance, but they're intolerant at your absolute judgment of objective truth. The world doesn't like, like, like truth, because truth exposes their lies. And the truth of light exposes their darkness. They don't like that. So they have to put a spin on everything. And so they have to turn you to be one who is unloving, a bigot, a hypocrite, self-righteous, if you will. Notice the apostle Paul used the word faith to refer to the reliance and trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who can dispense salvation. Faith must have an object, and that faith is only as good as the object. The word one, again, Mia and the feminine, excludes any other way or person for salvation bestowed to a sinner. So anybody, we just had the Pope speak today to Congress. Amazing. You would think something would be said about the atrocities of uh, the Christian genocide that's going on. Not a word. Just replacement theology of wealth distribution, destruction of capitalism, and the heavy responsibility of America to pick up all the tab. Wow. Yet the Catholic Church is so wealthy she doesn't even know what she has. And all that she's has, she has stolen. <laughs> Amazing to me. The hypocrisy of our leaders today, religious and political. It's hard to contain yourself at times. <laughs> One thing for sure is we don't have to worry about Jesus being that type of leader. He is a true person. Jesus was God and eternal. The seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. The one to be born of a virgin of Isaiah 7.14. He was the fulfillment of every promise of the Old Testament. This faith is not just the mere fact of faith of believing, but trusting and relying on Him for justification before God. Jesus, the second person of God, became man. John 14 1:1, Philippians two five through eleven. We've quoted many other passages. He became the substitute for every person every sinner God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him second Corinthians 521 and so he represented me on the cross he represented you on the cross and every one of my sins were placed upon him and the wrath of the father was literally poured out on him for me and he suffered the penalty of my sin death, he said it is finished and he dismissed his spirit. And then he raised himself from the dead three days afterwards. He said I have both power to lay my life down and to take it up again. That is the faith that we're talking about. That's the person that we're talking about. Jesus was abandoned by the Father at that moment on the cross. My God, my God, why has Thou forsaken me? In Psalm 22, 1 through 3, Matthew's gospel records it. Mark records it. Luke records it. And yet Jesus had no sin, committed no sin, but he died for all sin, and then he rose from the dead. We remember Jesus told his disciples from Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi as they were walking towards Jerusalem six months under the shadow of the cross that he would be persecuted, beguiled, whipped, and suffer many things at the hand of the religious rulers and then be crucified. But from that point on, he always said, and then rise from the dead. But they never heard that. He never mentioned his death without his resurrection from Caesarea Philippi on. Every time he mentioned it, he said, I'm going to rise from the dead. The angels told <coughs> those at the grave Jesus had risen, Matthew 28, 6-7. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He has risen. At other times, it says, hey, he went to Galilee. Tell the disciples. It's like he told them. Tell them to go meet him over there. The resurrection was the message of Pentecost throughout the book of Acts, in the epistles, the book of Revelation. You remove the resurrection, you have no Lord. You have no forgiveness. You have no way. You have nothing. Revelation 118 says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. There's no other person who can impart forgiveness. There's no other person who can impart eternal life. No one but Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith. It's like the man who... um, was um, going across Niagara Falls on a tight wire he was pushing a wheelbarrow and he pushed it along and you know people on the other side they're cheering him on and so he takes off and he goes all the way across and as he's nearing the other end and he gets to the other end he looks down to the crowd and he says do you think I can do it again? And the crowd goes, oh yeah 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 he looks down to the guy right in front and says get in the wheelbarrow It's a whole different thing, right? (laughs) Believing and trusting are two different things, right? If my belief is full trust, then I get in the wheelbarrow. It's a big difference. The one faith speaks of the person of Jesus Christ again. God who became man. The one who defeated Satan in Luke 4, in the wilderness, Matthew 4. The last Adam. The only name by whereby men must be saved in Acts 4.12. The only one who is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, John one twenty nine. The only one who is able to intercede between God and man in 1 Timothy 2.5 no one else there is no other faith that can offer that because they don't have the Lord they have works they have idols they have pagan practices but that faith does not line up with our Lord the one faith speaks of trust, as I said, trusting that this one faith is the genuine, true, and reliable faith to and for one salvation. Trusting that this one faith is sufficient for all tests, temptations, sufferings, and anything else through life. Trusting that this one faith It's about our Lord, who will be sufficient till the end. As the scriptures declare, even though you slay me, yet I will trust in you, Job says. He says, I esteem God's word more my daily substance. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of the very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He begins it. He completes it. I believe and trust in Him. I abide in Him. I look to Him every day, for every circumstance, for every situation. The one faith speaks of commitment to not trust in myself or flesh, to not lean to my own understanding. To not look at the things that I see, but the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. To not believe in anything unless it can be verified by Scripture. That which contradicts Scripture, that which doesn't line up with Scripture, are rejected. To not lose heart, but to pray in order not to faint as I'm waiting for Jesus to return. As we are told constantly that men's heart will fail them in the end times. As we look at the world, we look at things that are going on. I understand more clearly that scripture where it says that in the latter times, men's heart will fail them. As we look at all the confusion, all the evil, all the anxiety over the world, over everything. We understand that more now than ever before as Americans. How people can lose their mind. How people can just be struck with heart attacks or everything else. So burdened by all the things that are going on. And that's where Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my burden is light. Yoke is easy, burden is light. And so we rest upon him, we look to him. And we need one another to encourage one another in that, because it's a very natural thing to worry, to preoccupy yourself. Bringing everything in prayer. Otherwise, if you don't, then you'll be anxious about everything. And so we need our wives to encourage us, husbands to our wives, and so on and so forth, our children, our friends, our love, everybody. Because that's the reality of life. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, For this reason I also suffered these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Stop and think of how long you've been walking with God. Where were you when he saved you? How far he's brought you? All the difficulties, all the testings. And how far down are you now in the race? Are you halfway, quarter, three quarters of your life? Where are you at? But you're always able to look back to see God's faithfulness to encourage you for what's before you. We cannot tell the future, but we certainly can allow the past to help us to move forward to the future and the present and what God's doing in our life. And so the believers to walk in unity because there is one faith. The sixth reason, our third, is that we are to walk in unity because there is one baptism. Notice the Apostle Paul used the word baptism in its most basic meaning of identification. The word is used figuratively to be identified with different things. In identifying a person with calamities and afflictions, which one is quite overwhelmed, is one way. Listen. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's talking about his suffering. So he's using the word baptism there figuratively of being identified with his sufferings and his pain and his death. In Matthew three, thirteen and fifteen. It says, in identifying Jesus with sinners, he says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So the baptism was that of righteousness, identifying Jesus. Jesus was identified with sinful man because he, he was not a sinner. He had no sin. So Jesus needed to fulfill all righteousness. As John the Baptist's cousin baptized him, he was identifying himself with the sinful mankind of the world that he came to save. John's baptism identified a purification rite by which identified individuals on confessing their sins and bound to spiritual reformation in their lives, having obtained pardon of their sins in the past. And they became qualified now for the kingdom of the Messiah that was soon to come. So as John the Baptist was baptizing people, they were looking still forward. The Messiah is present. We look back. They were still looking forward. It wasn't, it wasn't too long, but they were still looking forward. Jesus never baptized anybody, by the way. It might shock you. The baptism of water was done by his disciples. John 4, 1 and 2 tells us that. Because he never wanted to confuse or mistaken that man can baptize in water, but only he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but there's one among you who shoelaces out my words to loosen. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. No one else. The Christian baptism in water is also a rite or sacrament that's commanded by Jesus. The word baptism simply means immersion or submersion. If you get a glass of water and you fill it up to the brim, That's not baptism. Baptism is you fill the sink and you put that glass underneath completely. Submarine, underwater. It's real simple. Sprinkling is not baptism. It's immersion and submerging. Now, water baptism is done after a person confesses their sins and professes his faith in Christ having been born again by the Holy Spirit unto new life, identifying publicly with the fellowship of Christ and the church. If you're not born again, then you're just a wet sinner. Okay? Water baptism does not forgive or take away any sin, but it only is a public confession of repentance of what has happened in your heart already through the new birth. Paul states that we are baptized Unto death, meaning that we are not only dead to our former ways, but they are buried. It is a public confession of what is taking place in our heart in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. There is also an anti-type that Peter tells us, which now saves us. Baptism, and then he puts in parenthesis, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 So, he makes a type of water baptism of a good conscience of the Noah. They gave a good conscience believing God was going to destroy the world with a flood. And they got in the boat. Okay? And they were saved from death. Some teach that if you are not baptized... You're not saved. Not so. You're complete in Christ Jesus. Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. You are saved by grace through faith that not of yourself is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Now, if you get born again and you driving home and you get in an accident, you're killed, you're instantly present with the Lord. If you don't get killed, then get baptized. Okay? It's a public confession. We just symbolically take you under the old man dead. Water baptism doesn't make you a real Christian or really spiritual or really, really born again. It's just like a birth certificate, okay? It's a public confession. Now, notice the Apostle Paul used the word baptism in our text here, not in mere identification but incorporation into the one body and the one Lord by the Holy Spirit. Water is no evidence of salvation, as we said, nor the basis of unity in the body, but the spirit, because many other religions baptize. Okay? Not only that, notice the previous five elements of unity are all supernatural, not ritual, One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. Why would Paul now insert a human ritual instead of continuing his list of supernatural elements? And there are many people who believe this is water. I don't believe it is. All of them are supernatural. None of them are rituals. Why would this one be a ritual? The super natural birth is the result of our repentance and forgiveness of sins that Jesus told Nicodemus about in John 3, 3-5 through 5. the supernatural, supernatural spirit of God incorporates repentant sinners as a saint into the church the family of God you are incorporated you are united into the family of God the church body not by water baptism because someone can get baptized that hasn't repented and they're come they're not united to the body they're just present but they don't have the spirit of God in them, right? so water cannot be cannot be water baptism the baptism here refers to the Holy Spirit not water now, if you believe it's water it's not going to damn you Okay, I'll give you the reasons why I believe in this context that is spirit. Now, there is no contradiction. Some objections are to the spirit that's been mentioned already. There are no contradictions to the words of Paul. There is one spirit in verse 4. Follow my thought. The one spirit in verse 4 as pointed out, means that every believer possesses the same spirit. One spirit, right? We all possess the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. The focus is on the third person of the Godhead in that context. The baptism in our text is to identify those incorporated into the body of Christ, the church, the family of God. When a person repents and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit. They are united in the same body, one body, one spirit, calling to one hope of their calling of salvation. Verse 4. And they are united by one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, incorporating every believer into the body of the church. Verse 5. Water certainly can't be incorporating you to the church. It's a ritual. It's not supernatural as the others. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. There's your commentary. There's your interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. okay, And the context is very important. When a person receives the Holy Spirit, their body is the temple of God, as you know. The Father abides in them. The Son abides in them. The Spirit abides in them. The Trinity is working in and through the believer to confirm them into and conform them into the image of Jesus Christ day by day week by week, month by month, year by year. The many members incorporated into the body by the Spirit are directed and used as the head of the church, Jesus Christ, wills by the Holy Spirit. The three-in-one, we've seen it over and over again. Many, many times we see it here again. By this one baptism, we are incorporated, united, and able to understand the deep things of God and carry out His will. 1 Corinthians 2.10. You can go from 9 all the way down to 16. That whole passage just speaks about it. By this one baptism, we bear witness of God's Spirit with our spirit that we are the sons and the daughters of God, as Romans 8.16 tells us. That I, that I say I know God, that's, that's no big deal. But that God's Spirit... Bears witness with me and convicts me and teaches me and rebukes me. That should excite me. that God confirms that he knows me. That's something to get excited about. that I say I know him. That doesn't really mean anything because it may not be. By this one baptism, we know that a deposit has been given to us an engagement ring. Ephesians 11:3. By this one baptism, we are able to ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit for empowerment and service. The baptism, Acts one five and one eight, that Jesus spoke about. Jesus, John said to Jesus, that He was the one that baptized in water. To all the people around us, I pointed out. No one can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, we lay hands on you. We anoint you with oil. But we know that Jesus does it, not the hands. We see in the book of Acts, sometimes people laid hands. They were baptized. They received the empowerment and some gifts. Other times, they didn't lay hands, and it happened anyway. So, it's not the hands. It's not the oil. It's Jesus who does that. So, the believer is to walk in unity because there is one baptism, The seventh reason, and the fourth for tonight, that we're to walk in unity is because there is one God and Father. Look at verse 6. The Apostle Paul declared, every believer recognizes there is one God and Father of all. The source of all believers. The reference to one God, Theos, regards the one and only God of those saved. Redemption is the context not creation. Right away when we hear this, we want to jump to creation. The context is redemption. He's speaking to the body. One body. Stay on the trail. Be a good spiritual hound dog. Don't get off on a rabbit trail. Don't jump to creation. We're talking about redemption here. Paul will continue with the measure of grace and gifts to every believer in verse 7. He's talking about the body. It has nothing to do with creation right here. One in the masculine, the Father. We have all three persons of the Trinity involved throughout salvation. A binding unity of the believers. The first person, or the third person, the Spirit in verse 4, from the beginning. The second person, the Son, beginning in verse 5. The first person, the Father, beginning in verse 6. All three persons are God. It's been all over Ephesians, 1-3, 1-17, 2 18, 3, 14, 5, 20, over and over again. Deuteronomy 6-4, the Shema of Israel, the Lord our God is one, a cat, a compound unity of three or more. The word God in the Old Testament Hebrew, Elohim, is a compound unity. El is one, El is two, Elohim is three or more. Anytime a Hebrew word ends in an I am, it's plural. Cherub, singular. Cherubim, plural. Seraph, singular. Serubim, plural. Elohim. Right in the beginning. What a great place to put the Trinity. In the beginning, Elohim. God. And then the Trinity talks in Genesis 126. Let us make man in our image. He's not talking the horn. He and lizards. It's a conversation between the Trinity. Okay? Now, this has been stated in different ways by various people. One way has been put is the Father thought our salvation, the Son brought our salvation, the Spirit wrought our salvation. Another way is the Father is the source, the Son is the channel, the Spirit is the agent. I don't care which way you look at it, just so you know the three are involved. <laughs> okay. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And you have the Trinity all over the Scriptures. Sometimes one person is mentioned, sometimes two persons, sometimes all three. Now the reference to Father regards the spiritual origin of believers then. This is the new spiritual birth that Jesus again spoke to Nicodemus as we mentioned in John 3, 5. This was the mission of Jesus to bring us to the Father. John 1, 1, 1 12, 1, 18. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but by me. The Father um, image communicates here a loving, providential, and protective concern and care for the believer. A Father is one who cares for his children, loves them, takes care of them, looks after them. Notice the word all there. The word pass. It does not teach the universal fatherhood of man, but only of all believers, the whole family in heaven and in earth. Ephesians 3.15. So when we're saying father of all, we're not saying that God is the father of All, even those who are not born again. No. Only those who are born again. If we haven't been born again, we have a repentant. God is not our father. God is our enemy. As we are his enemy. Very, very clear. Now notice Paul, the apostle here, declared every believer recognizes God is above all. He's sovereign over believers now. God is supreme, superior, and exalted above every believer. No believer is greater than God. He's not dependent on any believer. He's not subject to any believer. He's not hindered by any believer. God has transcended beyond any believer to understand him completely. God has revealed himself in his word by human language, but the human language is limited. God has revealed the Trinity, predestination, free will, but we cannot reconcile them, define human logic and reasoning <laughs> to their full end. And then notice the Apostle Paul declared, Every believer recognizes God is at work through all, the enabling and sustainer. The believer presents their body as a living sacrifice to do the will of God in Romans 12, 1 and 2. To prove is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. The believer is God's workmanship unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. The word is poema. We get our word poem from it. We're to be God's message to the world. Epistles written of all men, Paul says. Written in our heart. The believer has this treasure in this earthen vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Second Corinthians 4.7 Then notice the Apostle Paul declared every believer recognizes God is in every believer in you all. Almost sounds like a southerner. Every believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6.19 The minute you're born again Before, you used your body any way you wanted. You poured things into it. You did stuff with it. Now it's the temple of God. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit. We've made this very clear. Romans 8, 9 is one of many, many verses. Every believer is part of the body with gifts. Romans 12, 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 31. You're a hand. You're a ear. You're a nose. You've got the gift of... Word of wisdom, Word of knowledge, prophecy, interpretation, tongues, helps, administrations, many, many different gifts. Every believer affects other believers. We are related to one another. Every believer needs other believers. We are dependent on one another. Always. If you have the same last name, you have the same father. (laughs) That's your unity. You have the same blood. God is eternal. And he has been and will forever be eternal. Isaiah 42.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is no God besides me. None whatsoever. God being sovereign always does what is best for us and perfect. But we often misunderstand him. Listen to Isaiah 55 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow. God is working in us to make us more like Jesus. That's why John the Baptist says he must increase and we must decrease. John 3 30 I must decrease constantly God will then work through us each of us to preach the gospel to point people to Jesus to bring glory to him Paul the Apostle as he's ready to be offered up and to leave this place and go before the Lord Jesus Christ put it this way and you have to consider these words because this is a man who is in a dungeon waiting to be beheaded. Listen to his words. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved is appearing. First Timothy 4 6 8. The believer is to walk in unity because there is one God and Father of all. Here you have seven reasons for unity, very important ones. They're your pillars. The rest of the scripture will revolve around these seven pillars. And so, these are the remaining four reasons, a total of seven reasons that we're to walk in unity as believers. Because there is one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Ephesians is just an incredible, incredible epistle. It's just so rich. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. How blessed we are and how easily distracted we become and we forget. Lord, have us to bring our thoughts into captivity and to have you... At the forefront of our minds and our hearts, nothing can move us from you, Lord. That We understand how united we are with you by your grace. And so, Lord, we lift our hearts to you. Make us strong and faithful to you in these days of adversity, Lord. That we may be faithful to the end. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call on him and be forgiven. This is your prayer of repentance right where you sit. If you believe it and ask him in faith, He will forgive you and save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.